Most people have heard of the Apollo Theater. It's legendary in Harlem and around the world. What most people don't know is that there were times when its survival was far from guaranteed. In the 1970s, the Apollo shut down for more than two years. It turns out the story of who saved the Apollo and how is just as legendary. Picture this. It's May 5th, 1978, and the Apollo is finally reopening. Harlem is thrilled. The theater's iconic marquee hovers over the sidewalk in the misty rain. It's lit up with the name of the percussionist who will perform that night. Limousines line 125th Street between the two avenues. Waiting inside the limos are celebrities. Musicians like Nona Hendrix and Paul Simon and the model Beverly Johnson. Jet Magazine wrote that swirling spotlights and electric charges filled the damp night air. But there was also an air of mystery. About six weeks earlier, Billboard Magazine had reported that the Apollo has been purchased by an unnamed group of individuals. And a headline in the Amsterdam News, a Black newspaper, read, Secrecy clouds Apollo's new owners. There were lots of rumors. It was said that the Apollo was now under Black ownership for the first time ever. But the facts weren't clear. According to unofficial histories of the Apollo, a man named Guy Fisher bought the theater. He was one of the biggest heroin kingpins New York City has ever seen. The official version of the history of the Apollo doesn't ever mention Guy Fisher. We wanted to know why. When we looked into all of this, we found a story of ambition, of a love triangle. It was Shakespearean, you know. It was uh, a volcanic eruption. Of violence and of redemption. I'm Alexandra Dole. And I'm Monica Hunter-Hart. This is Shoe Leather, an investigative podcast that digs up stories from New York City's past to find out how yesterday's news affects us today. In season two, we look at New York in the 70s. We're going beyond the bell-bottoms and disco to explore what made this decade notorious in New York's history. A decade during which the Big Apple went by a far more sinister nickname. Unionized employees of New York City who faced dismissal have put out a booklet describing Fun City as Fear City. Crime was up and people were fleeing to the suburbs. One third of Harlem's middle class was gone, leaving behind abandoned buildings. Broken families, rampant street crime, the worst housing this side of Calcutta, and the worst plague of all, drug addiction. Two or three years ago, federal officials estimated that there were half a million heroin addicts in the United States. Half of them lived in New York City, and half of those lived in Harlem. This is the ghetto. The Apollo Theater was probably the most influential music venue of the 20th century. It was where Sarah Vaughan and Billie Holiday made their debuts at the famous Amateur Night. And Bill Bojangles Robinson and the Nicholas Brothers danced. Where Ella Fitzgerald and James Brown sang. But in the 1970s, ticket sales were down. People from the other boroughs were staying away from Harlem because of crime. Black artists were going to larger venues where they could make more money. And in December of 1975, there was a shooting inside the theater. Some say that was the last straw for the owner. Soon afterward, he closed the Apollo. 
After that, it mostly lay silent. That is, until a man named Guy Fisher bought the place. Or so the legend goes. Ask people on the street, and they'll tell you Guy saved the Apollo. Uh, he put it for Frank Schiffman. <laughs> No, we, everybody knows Guy, Guy Fisher. Everybody knows. But is it like knew him or knew of him? No, we Some knew, us knew we him. <laughs> it seems everyone in Harlem and the Bronx has a Guy Fisher story. Some of them good. So the kids started calling him Robin Hood because he would help out a kid if they needed sneakers. Others not so good. I think there was another murder as well where this person was accused of being an informant. People talk about Guy Fisher the hero, the guy who gave back to his community, and Guy Fisher the villain, the one who would eventually be sent to prison. That's the thing about legends. It's hard to separate the myth from the man, the truth from the stories we tell. This is season two, New York Drop Dead. In this episode, the legend of Guy Fisher and the Apollo Theater. Guy Fisher was born in July 1947. He grew up in public housing in the Bronx called the Patterson Houses. Guy Fisher and us, we would play basketball over there and, you know, just run, play some games. And then just after we play, we sit around and kick it and have fun and talk stuff. We got a tour of the projects from Guy's lifelong friends, Hank Ratty and Dorian Norris. And they dressed so nice back then. Yeah, I, I love the way... We dressed in our era. We, I'm talking about they, really the dressing. alpaca sweaters. Yeah, alligator. It might be 90 degrees outside, but they had the yeah. alpaca sweaters. You got your alligator so shoes, your lizards, shoes. you know, and, and, and these are shoes. They showed us the building where Guy used to live and reminisced about their childhood. Back then, everybody knew everybody. You're welcome into you any walk house. into anybody's house. They knew you. They yeah. knew your parents. It was a neighborhood of Jews, Irish, Italians, and a growing number of African Americans, Caribbeans, and Puerto Ricans. Here's Nilda Cruz Partica. She was one of Guy's neighbors. And the projects today are black and white. Back then, they were a melting pot. I mean, you know, um, <laughs> the lady across the street, across the way, moved, and she left her things outside the apartment if any of the neighbors wanted anything. But we were Puerto Rican. My mother didn't know any better, and she saw a menorah, and she took it, and she put it every Christmas on her window. Oh, my gosh. You know, my mother just thought they were pretty lights. Oh my when gosh. I got older, I realized that my mother was the first Puerto Rican Jew. Guy used to come over for dinners at Nilda's apartment. He was just, like, sweet and funny and, and always had a smile and polite. He came to my house. He was always Mrs. Cruz, Mrs. Cruz to my mom, you know. He never, um, he never was a kid that you would think would wind up in trouble because he was always very polite. Guy was the oldest of five. He looked out for his three sisters and his little brother, Wally. Guy's stepfather was an alcoholic who beat the family. And he gambled. He kept losing the money his wife made as a nurse. Dorian says because Guy was the oldest, he tried to fill in as a father figure for his brothers and sisters. He took his family hard. You know, and to, to see there's no food on the table and the mother's trying to get a job and it's still not, it's not even putting a week's worth of food in the refrigerator, that's, that was his pride. He loved his mother. I mean, we all love our parents, but he loved his mother. So Guy started protecting and providing for his family early. Some of the other kids in the neighborhood saw him as a protector, too. 
Here's Anthony Ruiz. He lived a couple of floors beneath Guy as a kid. Because I was a small kid back then, um, I would get bullied. And there was this one kid I remember specifically, and he just, once he decided that he could pick on me, he decided that he was going to pick on me all the time. And I'm pretty sure it was around him that either Guy was walking in or walking out, just sort of said, you know, hey, man, leave him alone. He's He's from this building. When he was a teenager, Guy Fisher got arrested for assault. He served two years in a reformatory for juveniles. Then he dropped out of high school and focused on making money. He started out selling shopping bags and then scaled up the operation. He began buying clothes around Delancey Street in Lower Manhattan and selling them up in the Bronx out of the trunk of his car. Before long, he'd be selling something else. He met a guy named Nicky Barnes, one of New York City's most notorious gangsters. He changed Guy's life. Nicky Barnes would bring Guy up, and Nicky Barnes would ultimately take him down. From dozens of newspaper clippings, books, and interviews, we pieced together how Nicky Barnes rose from petty criminal to drug lord. Nicky Barnes was actually born Leroy Barnes. He grew up in Harlem. His father was also said to be an alcoholic. Nicky started running the streets early. He started using drugs as a teenager. By age 14, he was a full-blown heroin addict. In his 20s, he went to prison. That's where he got clean. His sort of quote-unquote recovery story was really about that he was able to kick it so he could sell it. You know, can't get high on your own supply. That's Tom Folsom. He ghostwrote Nikki's autobiography. Prison was also where Nikki learned how to create a drug syndicate. He was a voracious reader. He got a hold of a copy of The Prince by Italian philosopher Niccolo Machiavelli. It's known as the Mafia's Handbook. And he befriended an Italian mobster. What he's telling Nikki is, is that you can use the tenets of Black nationalism to create your own mafia, your own Black mafia, right? So for, for what Catholicism is to the Cosa Nostra, you can use Black nationalism for uh, what Nikki would call the council. The council. That was the name of the syndicate Nikki created when he got out of prison. It was made up of seven independent drug dealers. Guy Fisher was one of them. Nikki wouldn't deal drugs personally. He just directed the operation. Court documents show that the other council leaders bought the heroin in bulk. Then they distributed it to people under them. The underlings did all the selling on the street. And the leaders took an oath. Here's Tom Folsom again. They said at the beginning of each meeting it was something to the effect of, you know, treat my brother as I would treat myself, right? That was kind of the the code of, the, of, of Nikki Barnes' counsel. Treat my brother as I treat myself. That meant loyalty above everything else. Folsom says Nikki viewed the council as a kind of surrogate family he always wanted. The New York Times reported that gradually, the council took over from the Italian gangs, which had controlled the Harlem drug traffic until then. By the mid-70s, Nikki was driving around in Maseratis and Mercedes-Benzes and strutting around Harlem like he owned the place. The papers described him as short but solidly built. 
He was always well-dressed in tailored Italian suits. And really charming too, you know, like a really charming, really smart guy. Um, I was, he was, he was sociopathic. I didn't get the sense of a lot of remorse for what he did. He basically had, had poisoned Harlem with heroin. As legend goes, Nicky was the inspiration for the famous Jim Croce song, Bad, Bad Leroy Brown. If Nicky was the baddest man, he was dealing the baddest drug, heroin. Heroin is one of the most addictive drugs. It's an opiate or painkiller. It brings on a rush of pleasure and relaxation by flooding the brain with dopamine. And once a user is hooked, withdrawal feels like hell, which starts a vicious cycle. Heroin has been around since 1874. It used to be the miracle drug for everything from migraines to cramps, and you could get it over the counter. Over time, people got worried about the drug's long-term effects. And so in the 1920s, the U.S. made it illegal. But heroin never really went away. It just went underground. The so-called heroin epidemic took hold of the United States in the late 60s and early 70s. Heroin. It's the reason you put bars on your windows. The reason you've got a big dog. Federal estimates say that between 1969 and 1974, the number of heroin addicts nationwide more than doubled to over half a million. There were an average of 70 drug-related deaths per month in New York City in 1971. That was also the year President Nixon declared the war on drugs. America's public enemy number one in the United States is drug abuse. In order to fight and defeat this enemy, it is necessary to wage a new all-out offensive. But Nixon's war had ulterior motives, allegedly. One Nixon aide later said that the White House had two enemies, the anti-war left and black people. We knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or blacks, but by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin, and then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt those communities. Nixon created the Drug Enforcement Agency, or DEA, and New York brought in new mandatory minimums for drug dealing. When Guy Fisher joined the council, Nicky was almost 40 years old. Guy was 23. Guy would later write of meeting Nicky, he had everything, I had nothing. They grew close. I basically think of Guy as, um, he was the golden boy, right? He was, you know, the guy that he had he sort of groomed to lead the council. It was kind of like the son he'd wanted, I suppose. I, I would say that for sure. The council eventually grew so big, it was raking in more than $84 million a year. That's according to an undercover DEA agent named Louis Diaz. Diaz investigated the council back in the 70s. He talked about it in a 2020 interview for the American Dope documentary series. Nicky was the most prolific, biggest dope dealer in the United States during that period of time. Nicky was the man. He was the Al Capone of Harlem. Meanwhile, Guy Fisher was flashing his own cash around. He hadn't forgotten about his childhood friends, like Hank, who he took on a surprise trip. We were playing basketball. And we were running and running, then after that we went and got sodas and stuff to drink. 
uh, he got a phone call, you know, and he says, hey, Hank, you want to come with me? I said, yeah, come on, let's go. Little did I know, <laughs> he's driving to the airport. We get on the flight, and next thing I know, I'm in Puerto Rico. <laughs> the council hosted fancy parties and invested in property. But people we talked to said that Guy Fisher and the council also organized Thanksgiving turkey giveaways. They handed out toys at Christmas and held basketball tournaments that brought money into the community. If the older folks in the neighborhood needed something like medicine, Guy would buy it for them. Here's Guy's neighbor Nilda again. The thing was that Guy would come back in the summers and the Mr. Softy truck, he would hijack it and buy all the kids ice cream and he would get them drinks and... So the kids started calling him Robin Hood because he would help out a kid if they needed sneakers or, you know, whatever. But in 1974, something happened that would put an end to Guy's Robin Hood days, at least for a while. He got pulled over in downtown Manhattan. We stopped him because he was changing lanes without signaling. Turned out he was using someone else's driver's license. That's retired police officer Walter Aspahowski. We placed him under arrest. We went out to take the inventory of the car, and we found uh, a bag of money, about $103,720. And uh, he offered us the money, and we placed him under arrest for bribery. What did it feel like to open the car and see all of that money? Um, it was just, we were used to seeing things. Police charged Guy with bribery. He spent the next 18 months in prison. It actually might have been the luckiest break Guy ever got, that cop pulling him over. Because while he was in prison, the DEA set its sights on the council. The feds had never been able to make anything stick with Nikki. But in 1977, Barnes, who had been arrested 13 times on various charges but never convicted, was indicted once again. What was his reaction to this latest indictment? He posed for the cover of the New York Times Sunday magazine. They called him Mr. Untouchable. Posing on the cover of the New York Times magazine, that bravado, that would eventually mean the end to Nikki's drug lord days. That cover story pissed off Jimmy Carter, who was now president, so much that Carter told the New York Attorney General to prioritize convicting Nikki Barnes. The DEA went to work. They sent undercover agents to infiltrate the council. And they did it through Guy Fisher's younger brother, Wally. Remember Wally? He was the youngest of Guy's four siblings. While Guy was in prison, Wally spilled the beans on the council. And Wally was this wannabe gangster. He was 19 or 20 years old. He was not a player at all in the organization. That's Tom Sear. He was a federal prosecutor at the time. He was the one who collected the evidence that would ultimately convict both Nikki and Wally. And in a way, we, the government, were very fortunate that Guy Fisher had gotten arrested and gone to prison, even though it meant we had less evidence against him. Because his kid brother, he, Guy would not have allowed his kid brother to get involved with Robert Geronimo, who was one of the informants, or the undercover agent, Louis Dees. He just, he was too smart. Wally's mistakes ended up being the most crucial evidence that incriminated the council. On March 16th, 1977, agents arrested Nikki and the rest of the council, including Guy. 
He'd done his 18 months for trying to bribe those cops. So he was out of prison and back at work selling drugs. And now, on trial. A journalist from the Village Voice described the scene at the courthouse. The 15 defendants were, by and large, an attractive bunch. They were all young, slim, and clean-cut, except for Fat Stevie Monsanto, who was fat and dirty. And in their spotless tube socks and bright new pro heads, they looked like an unbeaten college basketball team. Guy Fisher, who was supposed to be Nikki's most treasured lieutenant and a very tough customer, wore cashmere sweaters and shiny loafers and looked like the 1959 valedictorian at Howard University. This is the first case where the jury was made anonymous for their protection. Wally was sentenced to eight years in prison. Nikki got a triple life term. But Guy actually walked away free. His lawyers argued that he couldn't have been involved in the crimes being tried because he was in jail at the time. It was an argument that persuaded the jury, but only barely. The jury was hung, but the prosecution was satisfied. We knew we had less evidence against him, and we were so happy at the conviction of Barnes that it really didn't bother us. And then, you know, normally with a hung jury, sometimes you can retry him. We didn't even retry Guy Fisher. I mean, we didn't want to go through all that again just for one guy, and then we had to put our witnesses on again, and you never know what's going to happen. So. So they let it go for the time being. And Guy must have felt that he had a new lease on life. Guy discussed it later in an essay he wrote. Realizing how lucky I was, I decided to give something back to my people to make amends for my past deeds. My man don't love me. Treats me so Before desegregation, the Apollo Theater was one of the few places where Black entertainers could perform. It became known as the theater that launched a thousand careers. There was so much talent and so much competition. The Schiffman family owned the Apollo for over four decades. Here's Bobby Schiffman in an interview in the 70s. The Apollo audience is, I believe, the most sophisticated and discriminating audience that I have ever seen watch a performance anywhere. They demonstrate their appreciation for artistic excellence at the moment that it occurs. They are extremely vocal in their appreciation and in their displeasure. By the passage of the Civil Rights Act in 1964, some of the Apollo's fortunes were changing. Black artists could now perform throughout the city and at bigger venues, which meant the Apollo now had serious competition. In that interview, Bobby Schiffman also discussed the theater's financial difficulties. The maintaining of an old building is a very difficult and expensive job. The problem is that there aren't enough major performers who can come to the Apollo, who are willing to come to the Apollo. The Apollo Theater, by its very nature, demands of performers a financial sacrifice. Most top-line performers who come to the Apollo can earn more money in one night than they can earn in the Apollo in a whole week. That's because the Apollo has just 1,500 seats. Radio City Music Hall, in contrast, can seat 6,000. The Apollo had always been financially precarious, but by the mid-1970s, it was no longer sustainable. Simply put, the Apollo was losing more money than it was bringing in. 
It just couldn't afford to stay open. It closed in early 1976 and stayed that way for over two years. Black power to black people. Black power to black people. People were also growing frustrated that the Apollo had always been owned by white people. The black power movement was in full swing. Less concerned with integration and getting along with white people, more concerned with black independence and black power. So people were eager for the Apollo to finally be black-owned. In March of 1978, someone did buy the Apollo for $200,000. They even renovated it and put in a new sound system. And in May, it reopened. Under the new ownership, the theater had some big moments. Legendary boxer Muhammad Ali came in for a roast. Bob Marley played an iconic series of shows just a year and a half before he died. The theme of those shows, according to the New York Times, Black Survival. So who was this new owner? Here's where things get complicated. The word on the street was that it was Guy Fisher. And that's what we believed when we first started researching this story. It's what Fisher's Wikipedia page says, and what dozens of online blogs say, and the federal attorneys who prosecuted him. But when we checked the Apollo Theater's website, there's no mention of Guy Fisher. It does mention all the other owners. Even an Apollo documentary released on HBO Max last year doesn't mention Guy Fisher. That got us curious. So we checked the property records. In 1978, the Apollo Theater was purchased by the 253 Realty Corporation. We couldn't find that corporation in the state database. But we did find one name. It's in one of the records. Elmer T. Morris. He signed the mortgage. Turns out, Elmer T. Morris is Guy Fisher's stepbrother. We're not sure why Guy isn't on the deed, although we wouldn't be surprised if it had something to do with his drug dealing. But why would the Apollo Theater omit Guy from the official record, especially because he would have been the first Black owner? Under Guy's ownership, the Apollo would have a very short renaissance of sorts, but would then run into financial trouble. And as for Guy, his trouble was just beginning. Guy Fisher wasn't as flamboyant as Nicky Barnes. He didn't drink or smoke, but he definitely was a ladies' man. Like, because he was, he was very good looking and very well spoken. He was like, uh, you know, like a, uh, a Steph Curry of, of the streets of Harlem in, in the 70s. That's Scott Bernstein, a crime historian. While Nikki was locked up, Guy started dating a woman named Shemeka, his boss's girlfriend. Nikki felt that it violated the code, the one the seven members of the council swore to live by. Nikki Barnes was married. Shemeka was his girlfriend. Every time we read about the council, Shemeka was mentioned as a side piece, the woman that got between Nikki and Guy. But pictures of her showed a vibrant, beautiful young woman. In one photo we found, Shemeka poses in a pair of shiny black pumps, one hand on her hip, one hand behind her head. 
She's wearing a knitted white cap, and it covers her braids, which have decorative beads at the ends. Her earrings are gold and fancy. They frame her face. And she's glowing. She looks really happy. Shemekka's birth name was Beverly Ash. She grew up in the Manhattanville projects in Harlem. Shemekka met Nikki when she was 19. She was in college. Shemekka hung out at the Monarch Bar in Washington Heights, where the council did business. Larry Prelo was a young gay man from Brooklyn. He and his friends had taken to breaking into department stores to support themselves. One day, they went up to the Monarch Bar to sell their loot. So the first night we I met her, they bought everything we had. And she said, I want you to meet my husband. The husband Shemekka is talking about? Nikki Barnes. He wasn't really her husband, but that's how she saw him. This was before Nikki went to prison, when he was still Mr. Untouchable. Larry says Shemekka enjoyed the lifestyle she got from associating with Nikki. Shemekka had apartments that she just kept closing. Her shoes, her fur coats. Shemekka had a, a, a fur coat for every day of the week. Larry and Shemekka became fast friends. Larry had founded the House of Ebony. Houses were networks of chosen families for Black and Latino queer youth. They held underground drag balls. Different houses competed in categories for money and for clout. The ballroom was like a party, a performance, and a competition, all rolled into one. Larry invited Shemekka to walk in a ball. We found the footage from that night. In the video, Shemekka prances down the runway in a gold lacrimé strapless dress with a little gold hat. Shemekka, best woman. Watch out. The boxiest chick will do the trick. That night, she won Best Dressed Woman. Shemekka was now officially an ebony girl. Shemekka was a beautiful woman every day but she was a gangster at night. Shemekka worked alongside the council in the drug trade, so... Once Nikki got locked up, Shemekka was the queen of the throne. You know, you had the kingpin, now you got the queen. We wondered why Shemekka and Guy Fisher would take such a risk, start sleeping together, when they must have known that if Nikki found out, he'd be livid. Especially because, according to Larry... Shemekka was in love with Nikki, or at least with his lifestyle. Eventually, someone tipped off Nikki in prison about Guy and Shemekka. Here's ghostwriter Tom Folsom again. You're talking about some classic kind of Machiavelli stuff. It's like, don't outshine the master. It was a love triangle that would erupt into a devastating end for Guy and for Shemekka. Uh, they were public friends of mine that were supposed to be doing things for me, you know. That's Nikki Barnes in a phone call with a deputy U.S. attorney. There were a couple of friends of mine, he tells him, that were supposed to be doing things for me. Yeah, and, uh, and, uh, well, they're doing things against me, really. And they're doing things against me, really. Mm -hmm. Nikki's explaining why, in 1982, he decided to turn state's witness against the council while in prison. And and, and I have no way to reach out to get to him, and I want to get back at him, really. Mm -hmm. That's my primary reason. It was the only way to get back at them, he said. Nikki gave the government a long list of names, including Shemekka and Guy Fisher. Guy, 
who he saw as a son. Nikki even ratted out his wife, the mother of his two young daughters. Years later, in a phone interview with New York Magazine, Nikki elaborated on why he did what he did. As far as Guy Fisher was concerned, I said, Guy Fisher, I, I gave him a woman of mine that I expected him to look out for, and I expected him to take care of her. I expected him to start fucking her. I don't know why he had the bonus, and then I don't know why the other council members let him live after they knew he did it. When I realized that they left me on the battlefield to die, you know, I just said, no, I'll pull them motherfuckers in here with me. I'll pull them in here with me and let them see what it's like. No, I don't, I don't regret that. I would rather be out here than to be in there with them. When Nikki cooperated, he spilled everything. He testified about Guy's time in the council. Philip Douglas was a federal prosecutor in the case. In 1983, he brought Guy Fisher to trial again. Nikki and another informant testified that Guy had personally committed several murders. Nikki said that one time, in 76, Guy shot someone at such close range that the victim's clothes caught on fire. I remember that because it's just as that uh, testimony was coming in, one juror seemed to be physically disturbed and we had to adjourn the trial so that she could recover, as I remember. Uh, and uh, I think there was another murder as well where this person was accused of being an informant and Guy Fisher shot him while he was begging for his life. But the jury ended up acquitting Guy on the murder charge. All the evidence was hearsay. Neither man claimed to have actually seen the events take place. And Fisher's lawyers argued that they both had reason to lie. But the jury did find Guy guilty of crimes relating to operating a narcotics conspiracy. And under the new drug and racketeering laws, he got the mandatory sentence. Life. Philip Douglas remembers his sentencing hearing. Mr. Fisher stood up and addressed the court, and he, he spoke to me directly, and he said, uh, Mr. Douglas, uh, you know, don't sit waiting by the phone uh, f- for a call from me to cooperate. I'm never going to call you. And I remember thinking, I really don't care. <laughs> well, of course, you know, that's how the government makes these kinds of cases against criminal organizations is uh, people cooperating. Uh, so that would have been good. But I just spent the better part of a year uh, of my life, you know, basically seven days a week on this case. And I just, you know, I, mean, I was exhausted. And so I wasn't like sitting around hoping he would give a call. That's for sure. And, of course, he never did cooperate. When Nikki Barnes snitched, the Italian drug suppliers were furious. They blamed Shemeca. She was out on bail waiting for her trial. She stopped coming to the balls and stuff. She didn't want to be in crowds and stuff. She was just scared. On December 13, 1982, a man went into the council's hangout spot, the Monarch Bar. He wore all black, except for a white mask that covered his face. Shemeca was there, sitting on a stool. The man shot her three times in the head and neck at close range, killing her. She was 27. According to court records, a hitman known to be used by the Italian mob was the shooter, 
Larry from the House of Ebony remembers being in Harlem for her funeral. They closed the streets. They, they had Shemekka on a carriage. Tom Folsom, the ghostwriter of Nikki's autobiography, says that Nikki idealized Shemekka and was probably in love with her. But still, he doesn't remember Nikki expressing sadness about her death. But Nikki did speak angrily about Guy, his former protege. I remember one time uh, I had a some fruit on the table, and he grabbed like a mango and Nikki, and he started eating it like a like a apple, just like biting into it. And he's like talking about Guy and just like devouring this mango, <laughs> and it's like a thing had clicked in his head, and he just goes off right. You, you, that was when I would hang out with Nikki and he got sort of scary when he would talk about God. Yeah, that anger was there. And you could then I'm like, oh, yeah, this guy could I could see how Nikki would kill somebody. It's like, oh, Nikki's going off the deep end here a little bit, you know, even though he's an old man at that point. Now, I guess that begs the question, is this Nikki's true feelings or has he built this narrative up in his head so much that it's his justification for snitching? We'll probably never know. Nikki Barnes died in 2012 while he was in the witness protection program. Guy Fisher served his term at a series of prisons around the country. We tracked down a fellow inmate of his. Kanan Tatro described how Guy would react when the subject of Nikki would come up. This is like legend stories right there. So one day we're in a child hall, which is the kitchen where you go eat, right? So I'm like, yo, Guy, man, why you ain't why you ain't eating your pizza? He's taking the cheese off the pizza. This is what he doing, right? He's taking the cheese. I'm like, God, why you ain't eating the cheese? He like, because Nikki ate the cheese. That's why I don't eat cheese. Ooh. So I must stop laughing. <laughs> so I'm like, yo. I asked him, I'm like, yo, if Nikki walked through the door right now, what you going to do? He like, I'm going to turn the other way and walk the other way. I'm like, you, you want to do nothing physical to him? He's like, for what? He was just more hurt. Like, he's like, Nikki was like a father to me. It was the betrayal for me, you know? That's what hurt me the most. You made the rules to the council. We all live by your rules and your regulation for you to turn around and to betray everybody. And you trying to say, you trying to say, like, it was like a woman at the time. It wasn't about no woman. You didn't want to do that time. Guy focused on reforming himself while he was in prison. He earned his associate's, bachelor's, and master's degree, and eventually even a Ph.D. in sociology. He's written books and screenplays. After 38 years, Fisher's sentence was commuted in October of 2020. The judge gave him clemency because he was old, wasn't in perfect health, and was at risk being in prison during the pandemic. And because he'd been on impeccable behavior throughout his sentence. Guy was released to his sister's home in Florida. We reached out to him on social media, through family members. We even wrote him a letter and sent it the old-fashioned way, through the mail. When we spoke to some of the people he was in prison with, they showed us pictures of a smiling man with a neat salt-and-pepper afro. This is Kanan again. Coming from the inner city and coming from, you know, coming from single-parent households, Guy at the time was a father figure to all of us. We eventually got a phone number for Guy from one of his friends. But when we called, his sister, Florence, answered the phone. She's closely guarding her big brother. She made it plain. 
she wasn't going to let us speak to Guy. But before she hung up, we asked her one quick question. We have all these sources saying that he was the first uh, Black man to own the Apollo and that he bought it and renovated it. And so we checked in the records and it's not clear. So we want to be able to report accurately. So we just wanted to know, did he actually purchase the Apollo in 78? Florence didn't give us permission to use her voice in this podcast. But she did answer the question. She told us that the answer was all a matter of public record. Only it's not. Elmer T. Morris of the 253 Realty Corporation eventually declared bankruptcy in 1981. When we looked him up, we learned that he was a police officer in upstate New York. It turns out the whole time, he'd been working for the council. He also went to prison. Soon after the bankruptcy, a Black man backed by a group of private investors purchased the theater for around $200,000. His name was Percy Sutton. He was a prominent civil rights lawyer who had once represented Malcolm X, a politician, and now he was becoming a media executive. Sutton is on the Apollo's history website. Today, the Apollo Theater is controlled by a nonprofit foundation. To save itself from closing yet again, it had turned to the government for help in the 1990s. We reached out to the Apollo to ask about Guy. Their director of PR and communications wrote, Thanks for reaching out, but we will pass on this opportunity for now. Guy Fisher's place in the history of the Apollo is a clear omission from the record. Every other owner dating back to 1938 is listed on the Foundation's website. But for the years 1978 to 1981, there's no mention of the 253 Realty Corporation. It merely states that there was new management. Scott Bernstein, the crime historian, thinks the Apollo probably doesn't want to be associated with Guy. They're trying to run from this history that's pretty much undisputed by anyone that is in the know. And it's like the rumor in junior high that, you know, it's like a secret that's not really a secret. One thing is for sure, Guy Fisher's legacy definitely lives on in pop culture, especially in rap music. He's mentioned in over a dozen songs, and it's always in positive terms. On social media, we found countless Welcome Home Guy Fisher posts after he was released from prison. It was like people were celebrating the return of a hometown hero. No one mentioned the drugs, the violence much, or it was glossed over. He was no angel, but... Or he had his little troubles or whatever. There's one rap that really captures that feeling. That idea that someone can be two things at once. There's a line from an old movie that says that when the legend becomes fact, print the legend. When the legend becomes fact, print the legend. Shoe Leather is a production of the Columbia Graduate School of Journalism. This episode was reported, written, and produced by me, Monica Hunter-Hart. And me, Alexandra Dole. Joanne Farion is our executive producer and professor. Rachel Quester and Peter Leonard are our co-professors. 
Special thanks to Columbia Journalism Librarian, Christina Williams, Columbia Digital Librarian, Michelle Wilson, Michael Barbaro from The Daily, Civil Rights Attorney, Ron Kuby, Madeline Barron and Samara Framework from In the Dark, Emily Martinez and David Blum from Audible, Susan White from Garage Media, Professor Dale Maharaj, Fabian Merid, Elise Manukian, Rachel Pilgrim, and Josh Lash. Additional sound mixing by Peter Leonard. We'd also like to thank the people who generously gave us their time, especially Hank Raddy and Dorian Norris. Special thanks to Chad Marks. Shoe Leather's theme music, Squeegees, is by Ben Lewis, Doran Zunes, and Camille Miller. Other music is by Blue Dot Sessions. To learn more about Shoe Leather in this episode, go to our website, shoeleather.org. To stay up to date on the latest Shoe Leather happenings, follow us on social media. We are on Facebook at facebook.com slash shoeleathercast and on Instagram and Twitter at at shoeleathercast. Thank you.